How's that for a slice of fried gold? Oh, you think this is a fucking costume? This is a way of life. I'll be back. Just a fresh wound. I'm not gonna hurt you. I'm just gonna bash your brains. Take your sticking paws off me, you damn dirty ape. I'm sorry, Ben. I can't do that. It's alive! It's alive! It's alive! I guess everyone's a title of one scared. I don't know why I can't just remember that by now after saying it like 500 times. You would think I'd have it down. Well, hello. Science. Welcome to Cinder Shop, podcast exploring the stories behind your favorite cult and genre film. We do, we're, th- oh shit. See, I forgot w- where it goes next. <laughs> I forgot the next part. <laughs> See, it's not as easy as you think. There's there's a lot that goes into prep for this show. <laughs> we do all the research. So now you don't pre- have to. Next time you're in a nerdy movie conversation, something, something I'm, 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 in, I'm in the right general area of, of what the intro says, but I can't remember. <laughs> remember it word for word the first part i got no as we're talking right now i'm trying to like scroll through and find like one set of notes i have from the past and everything i'm clicking on well the silent night deadly night one has it but they were modified to be christmasy i don't know here's drag me to hell did i say it here (laughs) yeah oh well hello welcome to cinema shock the podcast exploring the stories behind your favorite cult genre films we do all the research so that you don't have to we're the three guys that tell you everything you need to know about your favorite movies and the people who made them so that the next time you're caught up in a nervy nerd it doesn't matter if they're there or not so that the next time you're caught up in a nerdy movie conversation not only will you know what is going on you might actually be the expert did you know sam raby and weird al share a birthday oh no i did not did you know jimmy buffett and jesus christ share a birthday that's uh yeah interesting uh, apparently we shared that fun fact on the drag me to hell episode oh, okay good to know you gotta say your name oh, we're not talking about that movie are you gonna introduce uh, yourself uh, <laughs> I'm, I'm one of your hosts gary horde i'm co-host justin bishop and it was uh event horizon was was before silent night deadly night by the way another sam nice. neil another sam neil horror movie so uh, that's just should have been easy to remember. Yeah. We're firing on all cylinders. That's just that's today. what that's that's all we're doing on this show now. Sam Neill horror movies. Next week it's going to be The Omen Three. So get buckle yeah. up. <laughs> yeah. uh, or In the Mouth of Madness. That, we will cover that one one day, maybe if we ever get to yeah, John Carpenter. That feels like one that should happen. Yeah, if we ever get to John Carpenter, one of these days. But anyway, hey Gary, Happy New Year. Hey, it's twenty twenty four. Good to be back. Good to be back this year of our Lord twenty twenty four. Hope everyone had a lovely, lovely holiday. Hope you enjoyed our Christmas special. That was fun doing that Christmas special, I think. We, we got a lot of really good feedback. Our buddies from McCarathon, the 24-hour Christmas movie film thing, marathon thing that happens here in Greenville every year. They were really into our Silent Night, Deadly Night episode, so we hope that uh, everyone else was too. But uh, those guys were passionate about some Christmas horror movies. and It was it was a good time. But now we're on to something new. This is, uh, we're almost done with this roulette extravaganza thing that we're doing we're, we've got one more episode of it after this one then todd will be back and then we're going into a new director for the next three months or something like that i think probably maybe a little more than that it's going to be a while but uh, it'll be fun it'll be a director that you're going to be very excited about we're very excited about but for now let's get on to this current roulette episode and, and this, and I, I gotta say 
this roulette has really been something. It, it is. It's it been, it's just it's been, been. It's been a ride. As random as you could be. Yeah. And you don't. You really don't know what the hell we're going to talk about. You don't. Neither or nor do we. <laughs> when we pick yeah. them, I mean, like you know, we've got a list of of roulette movies, but it's hundreds of films long. So we, it really is totally random when we pick these. So it's just what the universe wants us to talk about. Hopefully next week's pick will be just as interesting. You know, I, I was looking over because we, we've started this. We've been a go, doing this podcast for about three and a half years now. I was looking over the list of films that we, we've been talking about. And we've discussed if my count was right. And this is counting like a couple of the bonus episodes, like when we did the Silent Night, Deadly Night uh, sequels and stuff like that. Uh, at my last count, we've discussed 107 movies here on the podcast, you know, doing our best on all of those movies, doing our best to give a detailed account of the history and legacy of each one of those films. And when we started this little cinema shock roulette extravaganza a few weeks ago, uh, one of the first films that we discussed was House or Houzu. You know, then that is a film that, as we discussed on that episode, is truly unlike any other film ever made. Uh, for a lot of these films that we talk about, you know, it's easy to see a clear influence on their work. Like you can see, you can even look at a Sam Raimi movie, as unique as they are, and you can trace his influences back to to the, the movies that he watched growing up, or the Three Stooges, or whatever. But occasionally, a film comes along, a movie like House, that is undefinable like one that feels like a it's it is a unique work of art that bears no similarities to anything else ever made like it's just like this is its own thing well dear listeners i am here to tell you that the movie we're talking about this week is another such film while this one in no way bears any resemblance to house visually or thematically or or any in any way whatsoever what it has in common with that film i think is that it feels like the true vision of its director, a film whose influences lie not in other films that came before it, but in the dark recesses of its creator's psyche. This is a film that, I mean, it, 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 I think it's, it's behind-the-scenes story is as weird and dark and complex as the one that fold, unfolds on screen. Uh, this week, we are talking about Andre Zuavsky's Possession. I've completed my job. That's why we want to rehire you. It's out of the question. And what would be the reason for your refusal? Family. Maybe all couples go through this. You have someone? Yes. Do you sleep with him? Yes. How long is it gonna last? I don't know. When I'm away from you, I think of you as an animal or a woman. And then I see you again, and all this disappears. You know, love isn't something you can just switch from channel to channel. Who is he? Since we recorded our Silent Night, Deadly Night episode and announced this roulette, Gary, I have learned how to pronounce Andre Zuavsky's name <laughs> through through a bit of research. Uh, I will say that as we go through this episode, there are going to be a lot of weird Polish names. No offense to Pol- Polish people for calling your names weird. They are very difficult to pronounce for, for this English speaker. At least with like Japanese names, I kind of have like an idea of what, you know, I can read a Japanese name. 
and kind of have an idea of how it's pronounced. Sometimes I might stumble over the actual words, but I can look at it and know how it's pronounced. But some Polish names, I look at them and I'm like, I don't even know where to start. I don't know what some of these letters are sometimes. I, I put a lot of things phonetically in my notes. And what's funny is, is until we started talking, the only one I had not done that to was Zalowski. And then I realized, oh yeah, his W's a V. And that's the problem. It's like yeah. a, phonetically, it does not make sense yeah. for us no, as English speakers. No, we're, we're all idiots. all of these are like this. Yeah. I mean, and 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 the L has a little like slash through it. And the Z uh, in his name has a little smiley face above it. I don't know what you call that thing. I don't know what these letters are, but we're doing our best. We I have I've also written a lot of phonetic pronunciations in my notes because I wanted to try to at least be respectful to, to these people. Yeah, the alphabet would have been a lot tougher uh to learn for even me if I had to use emojis too. <laughs> so exactly. I don't know what you guys are doing over there. But... <laughs> well, in t- 2012. Critic Jay Hoberman. We've, we've talked about Jay Hoberman before, by the way. He's the guy who wrote Midnight Movies, uh, among many other things. He's a great, great film critic. But Midnight Movies, of course, has been kind of an influence of ours through our Jodorowsky series, our John Waters series. So we, we love Jay Hoberman's writing. But in 2012, he was writing about Andre Zawowski for the New York Times. And he described the director as, quote, an auteur to be approached with trepidation. And in that article, he went on to add that, quote, his movies are seldom more than a step from some flaming abyss, with his actors and audience trembling on the edge. Typically shot with a frenzied, often subjective moving camera and saturated colors that have the overbright feel of a chemically induced hallucination, these can be hard to watch and harder to forget. Uh, and I think that's a pretty perfect summation of, of at least this film. Uh, because unfortunately, many of his other films have not been readily available here in the U.S., but uh, Zawowski was born in Poland in 1940. He studied film in Paris before returning to his home country in 1960, where at the age of 20, he became an assistant to the renowned Polish film director, Andrzej Wajda. If you're anything like me, just on a side note real quick, uh, and you jumped into this movie, you were thinking to yourself, this is good. This is an easy one. We're just going to get us a nice little demon movie or something. Mm-mm. And Incorrect. No. So I, when, I, when I saw you... I heard you say trepidation. I was like, that's that's exactly right. Some of our listeners either are really down with this or they they're done with us at this point. I feel <laughs> well, like I mean, uh, I feel like th- this movie we'll, we'll talk uh, more about its legacy, but this movie is I think in general very highly regarded, but it's definitely not for everyone. You you made a joke before we started recording that you wish that Todd was here because this is one of those movies where like what the fuck would Todd think of this? Maybe that should be a that should have been a segment on all of these roulette series. What the fuck would Todd think? <laughs> yeah, we should have made Todd watch them anyway and then give us his thoughts. Uh, so back to the point. You, you mentioned Poland, 1940. There's uh, Zalowski uh, studying film in Paris before returning to his home country. For the record, for people that were curious as I was, Zalowski is entirely the right kind of guy for if you watch this movie and thought. Oh, what a pretentious asshat. It sometimes comes across that way to me. But he I mean, he doesn't seem like a terrible guy. But he's also, he, he's not like this poor college kid trying to scrape together funds for uh, his film on the weekends right. with his friends. Like, this no. is not one of those guys. He's got, he's got, it's going to have trouble. We're going to talk about that. But anyway, just for anybody hoping that for some reason, possession also possessed me to turn into a more pretentious 
know it all. Yeah, I did read way too much about this filmmaker and this <laughs> movie. But... He's an interesting dude. He, he's incredibly intelligent. Like when you listen to him in, in interviews and stuff, like he is a he is he is a smart smart man and and knows exactly what vision he wants to put on screen. I'm I've I've been very I mean I've seen this movie a few times but this is the first time I've ever like watched any interviews and stuff or read any interviews with them and I I've been highly impressed with him as an artist. No, and watching it and learning more about his past too, it gave me some more context for this movie that I thought was pretty interesting. For the record too, uh credit where it's due, I think a lot of the best digging that I saw was done by this guy named Daniel Bird who has done more than one like movie history kind of thing, but this guy I believe became friends with Zalowski after becoming an interviewer for him and it's almost like in some places he seems like just like an unofficial biographer of Zalowski. Yeah, he he's uh, a he's kind of considered a, a foremost expert on specifically Eastern European uh, cult cinema and if you have the Umbrella Entertainment Blu-ray 4K of this, which I think is the same one that you have, right Gary? There's a, about an yeah. hour long documentary on the making of this movie that was directed by Bird. Uh, and he also is on the commentary with Zuwowski on on there. Yeah. So yeah, they definitely work very closely together because I think he over the years has introduced possession and and the the director's other movies to a lot of people through like programming them at film festivals and things like that. So if if anyone is a, an expert on this director, I think it's probably him. Yeah, there was a uh, interview. I think it, it was in. So, so I want to say it was like French or something, but uh, there was a website called uh, Metrograph. Yeah, Metrograph. Yeah, they Daniel Burt. There were excerpts of interviews he'd done, and I, and I guess he he talks like he he sought out to just find out more about possession, but ended up just like falling into like just learning more about Zalovsky in general and yeah. all of this stuff. But the the town Zalovsky was born in is called it, it's spelled L W O W which is not pronounced Lawal, which it should be. <laughs> it's it's Lewouf, Lewouf. I'm glad you tried uh, to figure that out. Cause that's why when I started writing this, I just said he was born in Poland. Because I, I saw the name yeah. of the city he was born in. I was like, I'm not even, not even going to try. <laughs> I found this old that. 1950s like style thing on YouTube that was like a black and white like kid's classroom where like, the kids talking about Poland and then like somebody corrects him like my father's from there it's pronounced La <laughs> and it's just real weird anyway at that time it was occupied by the Soviet Union and this is that place now is what we would know as uh this one spelled L-V-I-V uh which is actually pronounced La Vue of course and of course it is. I don't know what's going on over there but anyway <laughs> it's part of now it's part of Ukraine, and as of when we're recording this, like literally two days ago, was the subject of a huge overnight missile and drone attack from Russia. Excellent. No, I don't have a I don't have a joke about that. No, that's not, the, not really something to joke about. <laughs> the crimes right? against humanity. No. <laughs> uh, oh my God. Anyway, where I'm trying to go with this is Zelovsky's father was a professional writer and a diplomat. And he worked for a branch of the United Nations. Uh, it was called like UNESCO or something like that, which is something uh, it's, it stands for United Nations Education, Science, Culture. And there's an O and I don't know what it's for. It's something to do with art. You can look it up. Anyway, point is they were from by most accounts, what I can find doing. They were well off. Uh, Zalowski's dad was a, Pol a Polish envoy to France and he moved 
at one point the whole family there. So they moved all around Europe, but basically Zelowski learned to speak French and all about the arts. Uh, lots of Polish film folk, they end up going to this. This one has a lot of dashes through the letters and stuff, and it's L-O-D-Z, which you would think would be like Lodes Film School. It's actually Wooch Film School. Wow. I don't know why. It's making up uh, rules over there. <laughs> I appreciate if you're listening to this and you can tolerate our ignorance. I apologize. Yeah, uh, if you're in Poland, please. <laughs> uh, we're sorry. <laughs> we're, doing, we're doing our best. <laughs> most most Polish film students were going to Wuch Film School, but Zelowski got to go to the renowned Institut de Hot Etudes Cinematographiques in Paris. And then, <laughs> well done. <laughs> and then he got to study philosophy at both the University of Warsaw and Sorbonne. It's just so weird. Like, this guy is just educated out the ass. And it was during philosophy time that he got to work as an assistant to Veda, or Vida, however you pronounce that. He also went on to work, by the way, too, as an assistant to Anatole Litvak. I guess is how you pronounce that. Most important of which, he worked on a film with him called Night of the Generals that starred like Peter O'Toole and Omar Sharif. Oh, wow. And I guess, so I, I'm saying all of this. I know this is a lot of information, but Litvak had also directed this movie called Goodbye Again with Ingrid Bergman and Anthony Perkins. And there he met a guy named Christian Ferry, who was a French producer that was an advisor of Charles Bluthorn of Gulf and Western Industries. And Gulf and Western, by the way, was this manufacturing and resource extracting company that in the 60s decided, we're going to get into showbiz. Mm -hmm. And so they bought Paramount Pictures. And later, Simon & Schuster. They owned yeah. Sega, the video game company. Later and if you on. watch a lot of older Paramount movies, you'll it'll say, like, it'll have the, the classic logo, you know, with the mountain range, and it's say a Gulf and Western company below it. Jeez, I had too much time on my hand during the holiday, I guess. <laughs> but whatever. Yeah. Christian Ferry worked basically as a producer here and later he was coming into Poland to find an army because Paramount wanted to make this movie about the fall of Berlin and they were scouting locations and casting for an army. Litvok suggested to Ferry that he should contact Zalowski and he and Ferry met up and they hit it off. He was apparently very impressive to Ferry because he spoke fluent French, especially with the military stuff. He was ever able to translate some issues and work that out with the local army. He got all that sorted out by sorted out. Uh, the stuff they were having a problem with is uh, Paramount wanted the, uh, these people to portray the Russian army coming into Berlin and raping all the women there. And anyway, Black Panther meme, they were like, we, we don't do that here. <laughs> and so anyway, but Ferry liked him and that'll matter in just a minute. I'm sorry that I talked too much. You go, Justin. <laughs> no, we, this is vital information, Gary. So did, did he meet Ferry? Is this like in his like college years is, is that around that time do you know the timeline on that he at least i mean it sounds like he was during his college years he was working as an assistant to these other people right right that's how he came in contact that makes sense Vida was like i guess the main person yeah. that he was an assistant to and worked with him a bunch and, and he'll credit him as like where he learned a lot about film and right. making film yeah he also i guess that connection anyway where he was just working as an assistant with these other people that led to this connection with fairy so right. that'll pay off in a minute of course, yeah. So after directing two short films for Polish television, Zawowski made his feature-length debut in 1971 with a film called The Third Part of the Night, which was based on a novel that was written by his father, Miroslaw. You mentioned that his father was a writer. So Miroslaw Zulowski 
had fought with Pol- with the Polish resistance forces during World War II, and his novel and the resulting film built upon those experiences, dealing with the Nazi occupation of Poland, uh, dramatized in lurid, nightmarish terms by Andre. Yeah, he was apparently already showing how strange he was as a filmmaker during this time. Uh, Vida was helping, I guess, supervise on this one or something. He was uh, called a guarantor. He even, they said he didn't even know what the fuck this guy was doing. Basically, <laughs> it was a reference, I think, specifically one of his war movies called A Generation from 1955. But Vida was, he'd worked with Roman Polanski prior to this too. And so he was kind of like ushering in the next generation of Polish filmmaker. Gotcha. And so he Mentoring. was accepting that this was kind of a new school of things. Like he didn't approve of everything, but uh, Zalowski says he kept his hands off and was like, all right, do your thing, kid. Didn't try to rein him in, yeah. So he followed this movie up with a movie called The Devil in 1972, a film that uh, New York Times writer William Grimes, this is in his, uh, actually the obituary that he wrote for Zuavsky, describes the film as a slaughter fest set in the late 18th century with an anti-royalist hero who embarks on a killing spree, which, quite frankly, is enough of a tagline to convince me to watch that movie right. <laughs> the, the film was blocked from release by the censors in poland's communist government and zuavsky himself was arrested for political subversion uh soon after this uh, zuavsky left poland for france uh, and that's where christian ferry comes back into play again uh he'd already i guess after their last meeting had sent an open invitation to zuavsky to come work with him on some stuff apparently that helped with travel, uh, getting out of the communist area, area <laughs> moving into the other place, if you have like an invitation for business or something like that. And so Ferry had sent this to him. They'd used an explanation that their uh, company had just made a film in Brazil. It was called like Le Grabouge. Uh, in English, if you look it up on IMDb, it's like hung up is the English version of this. But uh, he brought Zalovsky over to come in and Ferry recommended him to edit this film basically mm-hmm. they weren't happy with the way it turned out exactly so Zalowski went in and kind of re-edited it and i even read he like got a new guy to come in and score some of it oh, wow. and uh, a polish guy and that of course him doing a good job there that led to ferry being able to assist him with the next thing he wanted to do was which was based on a novel by christopher frank uh the the novel was called la, la nut american uh i think it's like the the American nuts. I don't know. That's what I like to think, at least. <laughs> so uh, that that's the next thing Zuwowski's working on. You said, yeah, yeah. Well, well, it's 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 the movie you you know of that was released in 1975. Yeah, so this so movie based on a novel. Gotcha. And th- this movie is uh, w- it was made while he was in France. It's called The Important Thing Is to Love. Uh, so yeah, it was released in 1975 to great critical acclaim. Uh, and the film earned its star, Romy Schneider, a Best Actress Caesar. Uh, Caesar is the French equivalent of like an Academy Award. Uh, and then on the back of this film's release, or on the back of this film's success, rather, he returned to Poland to adapt the Lunar Trilogy, or the Moon Trilogy, depending on where you're reading the translation. Uh, this was a series of science fiction novels written by his great uncle. Uh, his name is Jezy. Zuwowski. And the resulting film, called On the Silver Globe, was a science fiction epic following the adventures of marooned astronauts who have to contend with telepathic humanoid birds, amphibious mud people, and their own mutant descendants, which again, 
that tagline is enough to make me want to see this movie. <laughs> but uh, unfortunately, before filming was complete, the Polish government shut down the production and ordered the negatives to be destroyed. Thankfully, the reels of the film were rescued and they were uh, preserved. And then in the late 1980s, Zawowski cobbled together a new version of the film and it was finally released in 1988, although not quite in the version that was originally intended. Not to get too in the weeds on this, but you know, in regards to Poland, the Zalowski, the Soviet Union, I just think it's important to know where this guy's head is at during this time. And I'm not going to pretend to be a historian here. So if I get something wrong, go fuck yourself. Uh, <laughs> but Pol Poland at this time was, I guess, not technically part of the Soviet Union, but it was essentially like a satellite state of the Soviet Union. They were run by a communist government that was, if not literally controlled by it was heavily influenced by Vladimir Lenin and all of his peeps. So he's already been run off once, like Justin was talking about. And then because of his success in France, he gets to come back to Poland and try again. And there's a great interview with uh, Zalowski on the DVD that we were talking about, where he discusses kind of his experiences with this decently in depth. And basically he'd spent 18 months working on on the silver globe four months of that at least was just a holding pattern he said i think because during that period a lot of industries were collapsing due to recession and i don't did you watch on the silver globe did you see any of this or have you seen anything about it i've seen i've seen um footage from it but i have not seen the movie it's kind of hard to find um although i think eureka somebody there's a european blu-ray company i want to say it's eureka is releasing the devil and on the silver globe on blu-ray in a couple of months like in february so i'm gonna definitely after after seeing what i've seen from it and hearing about it, I am definitely going to pick those up for myself when they come out. Visually, it's fantastic. It is. Like, yeah. yeah. Every every bit of footage I've seen from it is wild. Like, like it really yeah. is. It's pretty impressive. I, I actually did. I didn't watch it. Um, I did find a version of it on YouTube in surprisingly decent uh, resolution. Like, yeah. it was just pretty neat. But I, I mostly watched trailers and clips and stuff like that. But it just it's, it's amazing how good it looks. Yeah, I think for this time. But anyway, it's not some like small indie short film. The guy mm. was going all in on it. And oh, yeah. it has like ridiculously elaborate costume costumes. But amazing. it's like it was gonna be like a three and a half hour movie, though. Yeah. Uh, and so I guess when he started this, he didn't go all in with all of that in hand. Uh, he says he started without any sense of reality really so they were having to a lot of the time i mean they're hand making everything that happens these sets these costumes but yeah just go look for the at the trailer for it it's, it's pretty impressive but back to the soviet union poland whatever uh whatever else you could say about Lenin, one thing is for sure he thought of film as the most important art form wow. he said so and this wasn't just because he was a film geek, though, because what he believed was is that when you had like such a poor populace that has a widespread issue with illiteracy, the easiest way to agitate, educate, or distribute propaganda is going to be film. Yeah. And so they cracked down hard on film over there. So you can find all this stuff, but when they they had like a whole list of expectations. I was reading through it for like movies, cinema all of it like the actual cinemas like had to return this much money and they could had to watch for these certain things and they even had a job basically over there for the minister of cinema which was usually just these like hardcore members of the party who would review analyze your film and have to approve it for the government basically yeah. censors essentially and, government censors yeah 
Yeah, exactly. And in Poland and Czechoslovakia, it hadn't been as bad as elsewhere, I guess. But like Zalowski in that interview talks about uh, filmmakers like Sergei Eisenstein, uh, who he said would have his name in the credits and listed right next to him would be whoever the film minister was because of how much power they had to control like what was shown. And I guess in most other places, it was usually like these guys treated it like more of a tedious job. So they weren't really that interested in being caught up in it. But for some reason, he said right around this time during on the silver globe, he got like the worst guy. And yeah. It was like just this really clever guy who took his job very seriously. And as soon as he saw what was going on with on the silver globe, he decided that it did not line up properly with, I believe the words were political, cultural, and social life in a socialist country. He called it a bunch of different stuff. And, uh, that he, he made them stop filming immediately. And he decided a few other minor things too. Like they had sets all over the place. They were, uh, they were, it was an epic. They had like sets on beaches, salt mines. They had it in the uh, uh, Caucasus Mountains in Georgia, USSR. Those were all destroyed, burned to the ground. And then all the costumes they had handmade, those had to be thrown in a hole and burned immediately. Yeah. And, and then all traces of the film were ordered to be disappeared, basically. And uh, and then he held a press conference and said uh, it, it had gone over budget. Yeah, so. that was his excuse for it. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I, that was I, the excuse for it. I think that they I think one thing that they had a lot of issue with is that there's a lot of like religious imagery in the film from what I understand. So I, I know that was one of the major issues that they took with it, but uh, having not seen the film, I can't really say what else, but I think they filmed about 80% of it or something before they were shut down. But yeah. obviously this, this version that they had to release in the late eighties is not a complete version because all the footage wasn't shot. So, but I, I have heard that it's still, you know, uh, well worth seeing in a, in a pretty spectacular film, even in that form. Yeah. He, he said in the most recent interview, I saw him talking about it, that he didn't actually, like it, it hurt him to go back and just try to piece it together, but they did it and he hasn't watched it really since the point of like trying to piece it back together. But uh -huh. Oh, and he's, well, he's dead now, but so I guess he's not going to see it, but the, anyway, too long. Didn't read Z Zalowski got fucked by the Polish government. Again, he got again. <laughs> again and he got blacklisted this time. Like he got really fucked by him. Like he, he said he couldn't even drive a cab. Like yeah. he, he was unable to work. He was not allowed to work. They basically like took his, his uh, papers away. So this second battle with the Polish censors prompted him to once again, leave his native country for France, uh, where he would spend the majority of his career from then on. And the first film that he embarked upon after returning to France was possession. So uh, first, uh, a, another little bit of important backstory here uh, in 1971, while filming uh, the third part of the night, that first feature length that we mentioned, Zawowski fell in love with his film star, a Polish actress named uh, Magozada Brownick, uh, who had starred, she had been the star of that film. So the two of them would soon get married and they had a son, but in 1976, they went through a nasty, nasty divorce, uh, which sent Zawowski into a deep depression. And this experience, if you've seen this movie, this should come as no surprise, but this experience served as a major inspiration for the director when he began working on the script for his next film. Yeah, he's depressed. He's blacklisted. He can't work. He can't support a kid. His family's falling apart. He likes to make movies, but right now he can't even shoot a porno or even worse 
like something from Sony's expanded Spider-Man universe. He couldn't even do one of those. Like it, they'll take anybody. And so he's walking the streets of Warsaw. He's going batshit crazy. And I don't know if you've ever seen pictures of Warsaw, but think ugly communist downtown Detroit or something. Right. Um, I'm kind of kidding. Now it looks fine, but it did have those like, big gray played buildings yeah and uh and i think some of that's still there and, and he talks about just when he was walking it was like gloomy and gray uh the streets were gray the clouds were overhead it's raining probably a lot of this feels like it was enhanced by his mood i guess but he says his first part of this was he gets this idea about a woman living in one of these flats in this area he, he his i think his exact quote was uh She's saving her soul, cultivating something unimaginable beyond all systems, beyond the gray streets and the red flags. And then he, she lets a slimy, tentacled alien thing fuck her. I added the last part that wasn't in his quote. But. <laughs> that wasn't in the original treatment. <laughs> well, after working on a, a treatment for possession, Zawapski enlisted the help of a filmmaker and screenwriter named Danielle Thompson. And he sent her about 20 pages of a screenplay. And uh, after reading it, uh, she loved it. She told him it was great. It was fantastic, uh, but that she was not the right person to collaborate with him on. It just just wasn't her thing. This wasn't the kind of thing that she did. So she suggested that he meet with an American writer and novelist named Frederick Tootin to collaborate with him on the film. Now, Tootin had not never done a screenplay before, and I, I don't think he did one after this. He was primarily an essayist, but he had recently written a novel at this point. And Tootin and Zawofsky, they, they met in New York. Zawofsky traveled to New York to meet him. Tootin loved what Zawofsky had written so far, and he signed on to the project. So then over the next few months, the two of them would continue to work and refine the story, first in New York, where Tootin lived, and then later at Zawofsky's home in Paris. Yeah, if you listen to Zawofsky tell the story, he says he ends up uh, in America because, of course, he can't get financing in Poland, but says he got another invitation. He says from a French friend, he doesn't say exactly who, and I don't know if this is the Christian Ferry guy, but Christian Ferry definitely says in interviews with him that he got the funding from Paramount to go ahead and pursue this story. Like he had read all the stuff that Zawofsky had and he was into it. So he got the financing to put him up. Zalowski says his French friend sent him an invitation for him that he could go over to the U.S. And they were like, let's see what you do out West because you stay here and you keep doing what you're doing. You're not even going to see your kid ever again uh, by the time this is over. So he ends up going there. He says, what was funny to me is he says in that interview on the, the Blu-ray, he says, and the French guy who ended up sending me that invitation to go to the U.S., he ended up hooking up with my ex. So... I don't know if that, was, <laughs> if that was Christian Ferry or if it was another producer. He's like, but maybe that was why. I don't know. He was like, I don't know. He was a decent guy. But because his ex only shows as being in a relationship with uh, the Bronick, she only shows to being with this guy named Andre uh, Krajewski after him. Mm -hmm. And and he's only interested. He was an artist and he worked on like movie posters and and that sort of thing. But he lived over in the U.S., so I don't know that he was like a French friend. So that was kind of weird. But he is certainly uh, an artist and very into Buddhist teachings and teaching Buddhism. And he, he's Heinrich. Yeah, he's, he's Heinrich. very much Heinrich. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, but there was another guy um, that they I can't find much about him, but they mentioned him. His name was Pierre Caron. I think they said his name was. He was a producer, the first producer on this movie. I guess he was a guy that Ferry had gotten to 
be the producer and oversee everything. So the way that Zalowski describes it, he goes to America, he's staying at like the Mayflower Hotel or something. He finds the cheapest bourbon he can find, and he's just drinking that, typing on his typewriter, trying to work this thing out. He says it gets pitched to Danielle, and she's not into it, so she passes it over to Tootin. Well, this Kiran guy calls, and he's got them on the phone, and they're like, would you be interested? He says, sure. So they end up, he, they move him to the Gramercy, and he's there, and Tootin comes to meet him at the Gramercy. Tootin says when he got there, it was pouring rain, and he's kind of a hypochondriac, and he's afraid of getting sick. And so he, like, covers himself up head to toe, and he puts on galoshes, a raincoat, a big hat, all this stuff. And he goes to the Gramercy to meet uh, Zalowski. And he says, when he gets there, he knocks on the door and Zalowski's opens it, just kind of just examines him head to toe, like looks him over, then invites him in, shuts the door and they sit down and they start talking about the movie, like what his thoughts are on the movie. And he said, he was actually kind of cool that like right after that, Zalowski looks at him. He's like, you know, you get it. And I was so relieved when I saw you walk in looking like that. He was like, what do you mean? He was like, I just knew they were going to send me like, some slick Hollywood guy that was going to try <laughs> to mess you with you are looking movie. like a weirdo. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's like, but you look like you get it. So. <laughs> well, it was during their, uh, this time in New York that the first actor to become uh, not officially attached, but almost attached to possession comes around. And that was, uh, believe it or not, Sam Waterston, uh, the guy from Law & Order. Uh, he showed some interest in, the, in being the lead and playing Mark in Possession. So while he would ultimately not end up working on the film, he there is a fun story where he helped Zawowski out when the director found himself in a bit of a bind. So while while he was staying there in New York, Zawowski got a call from his producer. That, I don't know if this is the um, the guy you were talking about or not because he. I never think this is that him. Pierre Caron guy. Yeah, because he, he just kind of up and bails. Yeah, because uh, okay, then that that tracks then because in the interview where I got this information, he doesn't mention a name, but he gets a call from this producer. This is the guy who put up basically the seed money for Zuwowski and Tutin to work on the screenplay, you know. And this producer told him that they had run out of money and they had no way to pay for Zuwowski's hotel room that he was staying at in New York. So he's like kind of screwed uh, at a hotel that had, and you know, they they owe money to the hotel. So uh Sam Waterston comes in and ends up paying the bill for him out of his own pocket. I guess he was really just really trying to get that role or something. I don't know. Or maybe he just did it out of the kindness of his heart. But I, I find that a it's a funny little side story on this uh, that the, you know, Sam Watterson, Law and Order of Law and Order fame just comes in and kind of rescues Andre Zawowski in this. The, not, not, not the side character I expected to show up in this story. Maybe he was just really gunning for that role, and then they had never had any intention. They were just like, "Oh, thanks, buddy. Uh, yeah, yeah we'll, I don't we'll call you." I don't really know why he ended up not getting the role. I couldn't find any information on what happened with his involvement and why he ended up not doing it. It could have been something where they thought he was not right for the role, or it could have been, I don't know, a scheduling thing. Who the hell knows? You know, these things happen all the time. But also during the stay in New York, Zawowski pitched the film to the head of Paramount, a guy named Charles, uh, uh, how do you say it, Bloodorn? You mentioned him before. He works for uh, Christian Ferry, or Christian Ferry works for him, right? Yeah, he's like the head of Gulf and Western, basically. So so Zawowski gives him this elevator pitch, trying to pitch the movie for Paramount to, to fund it and release it. And in his elevator pitch, he described it as a movie about a woman who fucks an octopus, which is not... 100% 100% accurate, but it's also not 100% inaccurate, I guess. <laughs> Probably not the best way to try to sell this to a major Hollywood studio, though. Uh, so Paramount, probably unsurprisingly, ended up passing on the project. But 
Zawowski did man manage to find another producer back in Paris, a woman named Marie Lorraine Rear. And that, of course, allowed the project to move forward. That's thanks to his old buddy, Christian Ferry. Uh, and, you know, a, what, what, another little side note I thought was funny about this. I joked about Detroit, and I actually, that was my first thought when I was think, hearing him tell the story about walking through Warsaw. But initially, the pitch was going to be like he had kind of decided that they were going to set the movie in Detroit at one point. Like they oh, were wow. like when he was over in the U S he thought it could work for some, like they had a bunch of factories over there that could work for the buildings he was thinking of. There was a large Polish community there hmm. apparently. And uh, anyway, yeah, that, that Pierre Corot guy, uh, he backed out. Nobody ever really says what happened there that I saw. Christian Perry says he actually remembers working on King Kong in 1976, and he was working with a younger woman named Marie Lauren Rear. She seemed interested in funding film, and so he reached out to her, and she was immediately interested, and they got the funding they needed. Yeah, so they've got a new producer on board. They've got a script that's pretty firmly set in place at this point. Uh, so, of course, it is time to cast the film. And Zawowski already had a good idea of who he wanted as the female lead in the film. Isabelle Anjani was a French actress who'd been on the rise on the international scene after landing her first major role in Francois Truffaut's 1975 film, The Story of Adelaide H. Uh, only 19 when she filmed the role, Anjani uh, became the youngest actress to be nominated for an Academy Award for Best Actress, uh, which was one of the many award nominations she, that she received for that film, several of which she won. So she's you know 19 years old. Uh, at that time, nobody that young had ever been nominated for this particular award. She didn't win it. I think she lost to Louise Fletcher for One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, if I remember right. But she, uh, she did win several other awards for that, including, I think, uh, a Caesar. She followed that film up with Roman Polanski's The Tenant, and then it didn't take long before offers from Hollywood began pouring in, and she made her Hollywood film debut in 1978 with Walter Hill's The Driver, starring alongside Ryan O'Neill. So while The Driver, it's gone on to become one of Hill's most popular films. It's got a great cult following now. It's a fantastic movie. Uh, at the time, it was a box office disappointment, uh, in the U.S. at least. It fared a little bit better in, in Europe and in Japan, actually. Uh, the Driver was kind of set up to be a Johnny's kind of big Hollywood debut, her big breakthrough role in Hollywood, uh, the film that would kind of put her on the map with American audiences. But when it underperformed at the box office, her Hollywood career kind of went along with it. But she didn't really seem to mind. Like, if you hear her talk about this in interviews, she was never one to really pursue the life of a movie star. Like, because she grew up in France, that wasn't really a thing. She didn't want to be like a big Hollywood movie star. That wasn't her end goal she just wanted to be an actress and make good movies and 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 perform in in strong roles you know so that's really what she wanted so not being able to break out in hollywood really wasn't wasn't an issue for her her next movie after the driver would be one of her most well-known roles one that i i think we've both seen i know i've seen it i think we talked about this on an episode of a few months back but uh this time she once again worked with an acclaimed international director in 1979 she starred as lucy harker and Werner Herzog's Nosferatu the Vampire, alongside Klaus Kinski as the titular vampire and Bruno Ganz as Jonathan Harker. Uh, Roger Ebert called Herzog's casting of Ajani in the role one of the film's masterstrokes. When Possession's producers uh, approached Ajani, offered her the role, her managers turned it down, so they had to kind of you know, devise a backup plan at that point. So for Zalowski, he says... 
initially this, of course, this was his first choice, the only choice. Uh, he said not for any previous role. Uh, he he says he saw her in a play called uh, On Dean, I think was the name of it. Uh, he said she was like brilliant in this play. and Basically, everything else about the play that night sucked. But she was from like another planet. Uh, she's half German, half Arab. He said, not a drop of French, but she's like in this like French written, French directed play, playing the most French typical stuff ever. And she's just perfect. She seems like she stands out amongst everything. Uh, he says he immediately, according to him, he immediately offered her the role. He says she wrote her, she actually ended up writing him a letter about it and refusing. He says basically saying that, what, me playing a mother? And he said she envisioned herself as like this eternal maiden that she was like young and she would always be young. And that's how she wanted to appear was beautiful. And she was obsessed with staying that way, even though she had at this time, she was having a kid or had just had a kid or something like that. Yeah. She had a kid at this point. He said, but whatever was her business. She didn't want to do it. She felt like it made her old. I mean, she was very young at the time. She's only 25 when she films this. So she is very young. And and I saw the same information or in one of the commentaries on that Blu-ray, they do mention that uh, she that it was turned down because she didn't want to play a mother, uh, whether it was from her or her management uh, via her. Uh, either way, like she Stone Cold just turns it down. So that, that was their first choice. They didn't really have another choice. So they had to find another choice. Uh, so while attending the Cannes Film Festival, Zawofsky and Rear, they saw an Australian-produced film called My Brilliant Career, which starred an actress named Judy Davis, who would later go on to become a regular collaborator of Woody Allen. Impressed with her performance in the film, Zawofsky began to pursue Davis for the role of Anna, but Davis was kind of hesitant to sign on, and, and she would eventually turn the role down. But while in the midst of all of this casting process, Zawofsky is also beginning to fill out the ranks of his behind-the-scenes crew, and the cinematographer that he wanted uh, was Bruno Knighton, who had won the Caesar Award for Best Cinematography in 1977 for his work on two films, a movie called The Best Way to Talk and a movie called Barocco, the latter of which happened to co-star Isabel Adjani. He was also nominated again in 1980 for his work on the Bronte Sisters, which also starred Adjani as Emily Bronte. And in fact, Knighton and Ajani had been romantic partners since 1976. Uh, so while they were never married, Ajani did give birth to his son in 1979. So naturally, when he read the script for Possession, when he, you know, him and him and Zawofsky met up and he read the script, he immediately told Zawofsky, hey, you know, this role would be perfect for Isabella Ajani. Either Zawofsky's just really clever or he's this is true he says he had no idea that they were together yeah that they were at a bar one night drinking and they're talking about the movie and he's like yeah i don't know what i'm gonna do this sounds like a story where either he really doesn't know or he's just like yeah i just don't know i don't <laughs> right. know because <laughs> uh i had this chick and uh her name was isabella and she she turned it down and that was really the only person i really wanted so there's not another actress so we got to figure this thing out but he says that they're having that conversation and basically says, hey, can you give me 24 hours? And he says, sure. And then he says, the next thing he knows, like Isabella's contacting him and yeah. basically interested in it. Yeah. So he, he said that when he he told him, basically when they're sitting in this bar, he said, um, Knighton got this kind of like sly, like smile on his face. Like he he knew that Zawofsky didn't didn't realize that the two of them were 
we're partners. <laughs> so, yeah. uh, but he knew, so he kind of got this knowing grin on his face. He's like, Get, let me see, let me see what I can do. And then of course, yeah. within a few days, she accepted the role without hesitation. He, he convinced, he, he somehow convinced her to take on the role. They were going through it apparently at the time. Again, this was uh, a lot from Zalowski, but saying that she had kind of developed a rep, uh, that she was temperamental and yeah. could be tough and he said that where they were living at the time too was like he said it was like in a like in a flat where it was like the three attics had a connecting door or something they kind of lived in that area or mm -hmm. something anyway he said the producers were like able to offer next to nothing he i think he said chicken feed was the term he used and she accepted it which was great for him is what he says yeah i guess that she had been sort of low-key blacklisted in france uh, at that point, yeah. just, you know, not officially like blacklisted, but a lot of people didn't want to work with her because she was, yeah, she was known for being temperamental, late to set and all that. But although Zawowski, when he talks about her time on possession, he says she was highly professional, always the first one on set, always prepared. So he doesn't, he, he, he never really saw that side of her, it doesn't seem. Well, there, there is, it, it I think I can't remember if it was in the interview or the disc or something. There's a fucked up story in there too, where because he on one hand he'll say like she didn't even want to look at the dailies. I think she mm -hmm. watched them the first day, and then she just wanted to make sure she was in good hands or something. But then he tells this story and another thing at least where he talks about her wearing the contacts that she had to wear. She didn't like the to wear those contacts, and he sees her one day and her eyes are all swollen. They're big and puffy. And she's like, the contacts, they, they irritate me. They, they drive me crazy. I can't do anything with it. And he says, they still had like another day of filming left with like doing the other contacts. And so he's like, well, I need you to get another day out of this. And she's like, how, how can I? Cause I can't even see, I can't wear these They're I'm allergic or something. He says he goes to the makeup artist. He says the director, I, I forget how the story goes. I didn't even mean to tell this story, but I guess it's worth mentioning because it's kind of weird, but he's, he describes being a director as like sitting on your web and you wait for the little vibrations in your web to see where to go to next or something. And he gets a hit from the makeup artist that she had been complaining about not liking the way it looked for her eyes or something. She was worried it made her look ugly. So he implies basically that the makeup artist kind of helped her make her eyes look worse than they actually were so that she didn't have to wear the contacts anymore. Yeah. Yeah. Because <laughs> I heard so that, I heard that story too where someone in the makeup room like told her that they made her look ugly or something, which they don't. I don't think oh. you could you would have to work very hard to make Isabella and Johnny look ugly. Right. <laughs> right. True. But he says that I mean he says it himself that what he ended up doing was going to find her. It's like, we need another day out of this with these contacts. And she's like, I can't do it. And he says he presses her against the wall and says, if you do not do one more day with these contacts, I will smash your head in and kill you. Wow. <laughs> and, Seems a little and bit extreme. There, Andre. Yeah. Seems extreme. But apparently, I mean, that's from, that's from him. He tells that story. Like, yeah. I don't know. He's proud of it or something but well i mean sam neil which we're, we're about to, we're about to talk about but sam neil does tell some stories that he was a very difficult director and he would scream and yell on set like he's one of those guys sometimes you know so that that does kind of track with other stories of him on set yeah. so speaking of which you know when, when they saw that movie my brilliant career that judy davis was in not only were they impressed with judy davis's performance but they were also taken by her co-star in the film who is a little known 
New Zealand actor named, of course, Sam Neill, which seems like the guy we could spend a lot of time on. But I don't really have much to say about Sam Neill as far as like the pre part of this. Like, well, before this, he had pretty much only done stuff in New Zealand and Australia. Like this, this is kind of his first international film. Zalowski talks highly of him, says that they met once had a couple of beers he said he knew immediately like this is the guy i want this guy he he talks about how thorough sam neal is you know he, he says they didn't they didn't do stage rehearsals or anything like that but he said like he remembered seeing sam neal's script at one point and he had highlighted in the script different portions of it in different colors that were like meaning the level of madness he was at on this page and so like he was and where she was at at this point so where he should be at this point trying to track it like scientifically like that makes sense though if you're um, here because you know they're filming out of sequence so that probably is very helpful for him when it comes to like all right on this day we're filming this and i'm at a i'm at a level eight or whatever you know uh, just to kind of keep it all straight in your head because there are various levels of madness in this film, although I feel like on a scale of one to 10 at the beginning of the movie, they're still starting out on like a seven, like they're starting <laughs> off pretty on un- pretty fucking unhinged right from the beginning, like from the very first scene. <laughs> Nobody's ever happy in this. movie. No, not, not a single <laughs> except for Heinrich, maybe. <laughs> Heinrich, Heinrich seems pretty happy at times. Maybe yeah. Heinrich's mom uh, early on. <laughs> well, yeah, well, of- a lot of people seem like they're going unhinged and they don't know how to deal with it. And Heinrich seems like he lives life there. Yeah, he's just, this is his default mode. <laughs> it's just living right. in the clouds. So the rest of the film's supporting roles were primarily filled with German actors, most notably Heinz Bennett as Heinrich. Maybe my favorite character in the movie. Every scene he's in is... <laughs> Fucking incredible, I think. I love that guy. Margie Castenson as Margie and Carl During as the detective who's hired to follow Anna. Uh, And there's a good reason for the cast being filled with German actors. Of course, we've mentioned this a couple of times, but for thematic reasons, Zawowski and Tutin had decided to set their story in a still divided Berlin, and they did receive the full cooperation of the Berlin Senate to film there. Rare. It was apparently her that was able to also secure this deal with Berlin. She was apparently was like really big on this thing being like an international movie. Like, and it was, it was like pretty multicultural. I mean, you got French West German co-production, basically Polish director. You got a Kiwi lead actor. They got a French female lead actress. I think it was her. They said she was like really pushing for the English thing too. Like it, it being in it English, being in English. Just because of the the reach you could get with that versus a big in French or Polish or whatever. And, but but insisted that it I, I mentioned that Detroit thing. I don't know how long that was at or how much that was ever actually considered, but apparently she was like very adamant too about, yeah, let's let's do your Berlin thing because we need to be away from American rules on cinema when we do this thing. Nice. So the majority of that filming took place in a Turkish neighborhood in Berlin that was situated just adjacent to the Berlin Wall. I mean, you see that in the movie. Like, the wall is right there. Like, some of those houses, like her flat that she, where the the creature is staying, um, like, if you lived on an upper floor of that, you're literally looking out into East Berlin. Like, it's really wild uh, how close to the wall those buildings are situated. But that's, I mean, that's a real neighborhood that's there. So, that's, they, they filmed most of it within a pretty small, you know, area of Berlin. And they filmed this on a, pretty small budget at 2.4 million dollars with a 12 week shooting schedule. Uh so with a small budget and a you know somewhat quick shooting schedule, they had to really utilize uh 
just all real locations around the city for the entirety of the shoot. So there aren't any sets being built for this. These are all actual apartment buildings and, and things like that. One of the most famous locations in the film is, of course, the subway scene, which is the setting of one of the film's most legendary moments. It's the moment that most people know about, even if they don't know much about the movie uh, outside of this. But this is the character when, when Johnny's character, when Anna has what Time Out magazine, I really just liked their their description of this. They compared to a dervish of unrestrained emotion and pure sexual terror. Uh, so filming that scene. Uh, it, it is a hell of a scene. One of the, one of my, honestly, one of my favorite scenes in, in, as far as acting goes in a movie. Period. Uh, but filming that, as you can imagine, took an emotional toll on a Johnny. So they filmed this in an underground subway tunnel at about five in the morning before the subway was open, and it was super cold, uh, which made the performance all that more physically difficult for the actress. So knowing the emotional and physical toll that it would take on her, Zuofsky only filmed two takes. Um, although the majority of what we see in the film is from the first take, uh, they only filmed a second take for insurance. Like I think the camera operator thought that like somebody's foot or a boom mic or something was in the shot, maybe. But uh, most of what you see is from that first take. And Zuofsky's direction to her in the scene was to, quote, fuck the air. To be fair, that's the, usually the notes I give you before we start recording. That's what I try so, to do every single time. Yeah, it's good life advice in general, I like <laughs> to think. Um, but no, I he, he does say in a couple of interviews that there was a second take uh, that like the, uh, uh, what's his name, the cinematographer guy. Uh, he, 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 yeah, Newton. Uh, he, he, uh, I don't know if it was something like he thought there might be a foot in there, blah, 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 blah. But they said like the second one was like nowhere near anything like the first was. So, yeah, I mean, how do, how do you reproduce that? To... I mean, how do you do that twice? You know, like I, I don't I don't know how any no matter how great of an actress you are. I don't know. don't know how anyone does. Performs that scene and then like resets and does it all over again, you know? Yeah, no no and it's it's obviously powerful basic i mean based on um just i think i think this thing's been on tiktok i think i probably saw it on tiktok before i saw it anywhere else like i've seen this that scene set to other stuff and i think uh rosamund pike does it in a massive attack music video i saw oh yeah uh, yeah for uh, i think it's always voodoo in my blood and um but there, there's like there's example. I, mean, I don't know. It's it's survived all these times. Even if you don't know the movie that it comes from, I think there's a chance you've seen this. Uh, yeah. I think it trended for a while. So I don't know. I mean, it's, pretty, it's pretty such incredible. a like it's such a feral like it just a it's such a feral physical like primal kind of thing that she's doing there that it's like it, it doesn't feel like acting like it feels like she's like expunging something like it's really remarkable work it's it's really incredible but well she certainly expunges something at the end yeah that's her son that's her yeah <laughs> <laughs> in later interviews Johnny would state that it took her several years to recover from her performance uh, and it was actually rumored that she attempted suicide after filming was complete a fact that was later confirmed by Zawowski himself Although I will say the way that he tells the story was that, you know, you, you mentioned that she never watched the dailies. 
So after she saw this for the first time, she like went into the bathroom wherever they were screening it for the cast at the first time and tried to slit her wrist, but she was using something that like was not very sharp. And it was like the way that he makes it sound, and this could just be him being an asshole. I don't know. But the way he makes it sound, it kind of sounds like she was just being dramatic, you know, and not actually trying to kill herself, but just kind of like making a show of, of what she thought of her performance. Because I mean, can you imagine like you haven't seen this and you see yourself on screen doing that, you know, like, that would be that would be hard to watch, I would think. And I, I I mean, I'm not an actor, so I don't I don't like seeing myself in videos where I'm just talking normal. But like even for someone who professionally is used to seeing themselves on screen, like seeing yourself in that state, I could see how that could be kind of emotionally devastating for you or psychologically devastating for you. You would certainly worry about how you're gonna come across, that's for sure. Yeah, yeah. The filming also took a, a toll on Neil, who he would later say, uh, quote, I call it the most extreme film I've ever made in every possible respect. And he asked of us things I wouldn't and couldn't go to now. And I think I only just escaped that film with my sanity barely intact. And he, he says even more about it. And he had a, an autobiography, a memoir come out like, I want to say earlier this year, maybe last year. Uh, Sam Neill did. And he talks about the filming of Possession and how difficult it was from like a, a an emotional standpoint and how difficult Zuofsky was. Like he says that he was a very difficult director on set, but he's incredibly proud of his work on the film. Sam Neill is, and he calls it one of the best movies that he's ever made. He calls it a masterpiece. He calls it a flawed masterpiece, but he calls it a masterpiece. So outside of that subway scene, uh, the other most notorious element of the film is the monster itself, the, the octopus, <laughs> if you will. So when working on the screenplay, Tutin says that he was unaware that Zawowski was had, had planned to show the monster in full. He kind of assumed that it would be briefly glimpsed or possibly only alluded to without really being seen at all. Uh, little did he know that at some point during the development process, Zawowski decided to show the tentacled beast in all of its goopy glory. So before filming, while the movie was still being developed, you know, uh, Zawowski attended a screening of Ridley Scott's Alien. Uh, and he kind of had a revelation watching Alien. Uh, seeing the xenomorph on screen, he knew that the man, that, that he wanted the man who was responsible for that creation to create his own monster for possession. So he contacted that guy, H.R. Geiger. Uh, we've talked about him extensively on this podcast in the past. If you've listened to our two-part episode on Alien, we talk all about this guy. Uh, so we wanted him to design the monster. But the Swiss artist was too busy working on other projects. So he told Zawowski, he suggested that they contact Carlo Rambaldi for help. So Carlo Rambaldi was an Italian special effects artist who had worked with famed Italian directors like uh, Lucio Fulci, Mario Bava, Federico Fellini, Pier Paolo Pasolini, and Dario Argento before... Dino De Laurentiis brought him along with him to America, where he had Rambaldi create the King Kong animatronic in De Laurentiis' uh, 1976 remake, for which Rambaldi won a special achievement Oscar for his work. I mean, they, they didn't even have special effects Oscars yet in 1976, but the, the Academy, I guess, thought his work was so good that they created a special achievement Oscar just to give him. They're like, we got to give this guy something for for this work see he kind of pioneered you know rick baker did a lot of work in king kong and rick baker's work is actually on screen more than rimbaldi's but rimbaldi really kind of pioneered um like animatronics and robotics and in, in this kind of stuff like he uh 
as opposed to like mere puppetry or or like the Rick Baker creation for King Kong, which is a guy in a suit. Rimbaldi was really pioneering using robotics and things like that and hydraulics in special effects. So this work on King Kong led him to work primarily in Hollywood for the rest of his career. Like once he did that, he was in he was a Hollywood guy and he included uh, working with guys like Steven Spielberg on Close Encounters of the Third Kind, where he created, you know, the, the little alien guy who walks out and looks around and waves at the end of the movie. He created that guy, and he created uh, probably his most famous creation was E.T., the extraterrestrial, uh, which brought him his second Oscar for Best Visual Effects, an award that he had also won for his work on Alien, where he created the animatronic xenomorph head that's used in the film. The hard part with this is the monster is... <sighs> I don't know. I, I mean, when you when you hear uh, Zlovsky talk about it, I mean, the thing he, he even admits this is a difficult thing to say is that he's walking around like trying to tell people, uh, you know, they're like, well, what does it look like? And he's, it looks like nothing you've ever seen before. It doesn't look like <laughs> anything else. Like, OK, well, what? So what does that look like? <laughs> I don't know. I don't know how to explain this. Like it's uh it's something different. And so when they get to Rabaldi, and you know, you mentioned uh I, I guess uh rare and maybe seen him on uh you know King Kong, and it's so funny we were talking about how just like how this automatically makes it a uh one degree away from like Steven Spielberg and E.T. Yeah. and <laughs> yeah. stuff like that, which is just so weird. Yeah, so he uh he created this guy and he actually had to create it a couple of times i think right didn't he 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 created it primarily in los angeles in his studio in los angeles yeah. he said when he when he talked to ribaldi like it was it was like the to work with him the the main thing was to force him to draw um and to keep drawing he said like it went through like four stages of evolution yeah. with what they were doing and then by the time he gets there it is, uh, I think he says, you know, it's just like this unidentifiable form, like this peak latex and this, I, I think they describe it eventually as like, it just looks like a big pink dick. Uh, <laughs> yeah. just some kind of Which I think was a pink. little more on the, on the nose than what, what Zulowski wanted. I think he was like, that's a little too, it makes the metaphor a little too obvious maybe. Yeah. And, uh, and, and so he, he says that there was, you know, they didn't have time for like sophisticated electronics or anything and, uh, and or money, I guess, probably. Um, and it was so it was a pretty primitive thing, but it's it's he, he I guess from Baldy gets there and, and you'll hear people like I think even Joe Bob and his well, when they showed the movie The Last Drive, it acted like uh, Zalovsky was angry with him because he kind of showed with it showed up with it unfinished basically but it most interviews i see with him he doesn't sound like he expected him to be completely ready right but to know that he didn't have much time to get it ready and so like they said that Rabaldi gets there and it's like all right well here's where we're at right now and so we'll figure this thing out uh now that we're on set and he's like uh you know how 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 long do we how long do I have to, to finish this, to finish the rest of it? And he's just like, you got two days. Yeah. And he's like two days. No, I think it was like, I think <laughs> they were shooting the next day and then they were, going maybe to that they, was a, they had, they, but they were going to film for just two days. 
But oh, like, that was when, yeah. When, they were he, when he had for two days, yeah. When he was like, "When are we gonna shoot with this thing?" It's like, "Oh, well, tomorrow." Like you have you have tonight to finish this. <laughs> yeah, and he literally says like, "Well, what?" He's like, "Do you understand that I did close encounters of the third kind, and there was a close up shot of the alien?" It's like. Do you know how much time I had for that? It was like six weeks. I had six weeks, eight hours a day. Uh, they used like meters of film to make sure they had the right angles and the right look. And he's like, uh, Solovsky's like, well, this ain't Hollywood, man. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Basically, he's like, you dig into those this. like low budget Italian roots. Like, <laughs> remember when you were working with Lucio Fulci and Dario Argento? And let's do some of that shit again, is what he's saying, basically. Because you know, Rambaldi is able to do something quick and, and dirty and low budget because that's where he started. Yeah. He had maybe gotten spoiled a little when he went to work for Spielberg and Dino De Laurentiis in Hollywood. But still, like, he started out doing stuff where it's like, we're slapping together things with latex and string and glue, and then we're shooting it tomorrow, right? So, so he he could do it, and and he did. Obviously, he pulled it off, and uh, he ended up uh, slightly redesigning the creature, I think. But I think when you see the the thing in the bed, kind of writhing around, like it's literally just they're moving it with black string that you that just the camera's not picking up. Like it, it, it this is no, none of his, none of his robotics and hydraulics are coming into place here. This is like very, very primitive. Yeah. I think they said they had somebody like in the bed or something like under the yeah. bed. Basically, yeah. To make like it writhe and stuff. Yeah. yeah but and uh, they said they did that, that essentially like each thing took a, uh, uh, it was like three or four chances they had to shoot it. Like they said, they put Newton through hell, you yeah. know, to like line up the lighting and the shot and exactly what angle was going to work. And so you usually had to go over it, like do the scene, like a couple of times to kind of nail it down. And then you do it. Uh, in fact, the only regretful thing he seems to ever have in an interview was that because of the time with the monster, he says that, that there were like, a couple of scenes he didn't they were just so tight on schedule and everything that he didn't get to shoot because they this this was the part that ended up taking a little longer than they anticipated or something and yeah. so um you know he, he was telling the story about like i don't know in one interview he sounds almost sad about it, in another interview he's like fuck it whatever uh but it's like because he tells the story about like john ford or something he's like john ford had a rule of you know like how many days behind are we and they tell him, and then he's like, counts that many pages, and it's like, rip, throws them out. <laughs> uh, I mean, the, the monster's only on the screen, like, maybe four times, I think. The, the first time is when the, the guy who's yeah. following her comes into the apartment, and you just kind of get a glimpse of it. You don't really know what you're looking at. It just looks like some goop and shit on a wall. Um, you might get a little glimpse of an eyeball in there, but it's really hard to tell what you're looking at there. And then later, when his when that guy's partner comes looking for him after he's been killed, then you see it like in the bed with blood everywhere, and it's writhing, and you still don't really know what you're looking at, which I think makes it incredibly effective. Like you don't know, like what the fuck is that on the bed? All you see is blood, and you see some sort of flesh pulsing and tentacles, but you can't really tell what it is. You get that close up of the face, 
I'll use face in quotes, but uh, where you see its eyes and its weird little little mouth, and then of course you see it when when they're fucking, uh, which is the time you see it the most and the most explicitly is in that scene. But I think using it just here and there makes it way more effective, and because of the way that it's designed, you never really are sure what you're looking at, which makes it all the more unsettling. I think, like you're like what what is going on right now? Like the first time you see this movie, if you don't know that that's coming, what you would be like flabbergasted. Like what, what fucking turn did this movie just take? You know? Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it's weird that, uh, I, I like one thing that Daniel Burr was talking about in one of the articles I was reading, but he basically talks about, he was like, uh, Zolovsky, you know, is coming into his own as a filmmaker. And he says like, uh, like a couple of years before this, like Bergman had released scenes from a marriage, uh, about a similar subject matter, but Zalowski found the thing that was really missing from Bergman's movie, and that was a monster. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, so, but it was he points out in that article, that same article, talking about Close Encounters of the Third Kind, Alien, King Kong, uh, uh, all that stuff was like Jaws, like just coming out during this time. Yeah. So he doesn't know how much that like impacted that, but you know, he was going to be more interested in the. Uh, you know, this is that Lovecraftian ideal we talk about sometimes. And then it's weird because that's the hard part about anything with that style is like, it's about this unknowable thing. And I'm not saying he's trying to do like sci-fi or a horror movie necessarily. I'm sure that's part of the discussion, but the it's like, how do you make something that you've never seen before? Like, how do you make like this, something your brain can't comprehend yeah it's uh, how do you put that on screen and so it's admirable that's that's that is what they're trying to go for here yeah and uh they do a pretty good job i mean it's 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 pretty amazing yeah also weird i just thought about that when you said lovecraftian that you know we we mentioned the lovecraftian elements of event horizon as well with sam neill and He's in in the mouth was, of madness. I was gonna say, and you get in the mouth of madness. Sam Neill is like the guy for these. Apparently. Yeah, I guess so. Yeah. <laughs> wow, I never thought about that, that that connection. But you're, yeah, they're all very like they've all got Lovecraftian elements. This one less so than those two. Those two are a little more overt, especially in the mouth of madness. But still, yeah, he's. I guess the. I guess he's the Lovecraft guy. Uh, yeah, accidentally. <laughs> He better well, but, get in touch with James Watt and these other guys that are about yeah. to be making movies, I guess. Yeah, Call of Cthulhu, right? It's coming out. Yeah. Well, Possession had its world premiere at the Cannes Film Festival before being released in France on May 27th, 1981. It was also briefly released in the UK uh, before it was banned as one of those notorious video nasties. It made the video nasties list alongside like Cannibal Holocaust and Driller Killer and shit like that possession is there which doesn't feel like it fits but apparently it was put on the video nasties list on the grounds of the scene where she's fucking the the beast um because they said it was bestiality which i don't think it really is because it's not actually an octopus uh it is a um it is her son slash clone of her husband i don't know what it is but it's not an octopus yeah fast fast forward to 2023 where uh the boys is on the air and right, there's yeah, yeah. definite octopus fucking on there like literal octopus fucking <laughs> right <laughs> just on 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 a, on a tv show on television on amazon yeah produced by the biggest corporation in the world <laughs> right. 
Uh, critical reviews in Europe were pretty lukewarm when the movie came out, but the film and especially Johnny's performance were praised on the awards and festival circuit. Uh, at the Cannes Film Festival, where it premiered, Possession was nominated for the Palme d'Or, which is kind of the equivalent of like best picture at the at the film festival. And Johnny won the award there at, at Cannes for Best Actress, and she was nominated again for the Best Actress Award at the 1982 Caesar Awards. By the time the film was released in America in 1983, it had been heavily edited. Uh, This new 81-minute cut of the film had transformed Possession into an eccentric body horror movie, removing nearly everything involving the film's main themes of a painful breakup and marriage. It just kind of focused on the horror elements of it. Uh, And it even added in scenes that Zawowski had cut, and it used a new, more heavy-handed score. It even has this, like, bizarre... The, these like psychedelic optical effects thrown over scenes for for no good reason. Uh, ha- have you seen the American cut, by the way, or any of the scenes from it? I have not. I have not no. seen any of this. I don't. Think. Yeah. So the uh, the Umbrella uh, Entertainment Blu-ray that that we both have, or the the 4K release that came out pretty recently, actually has the U.S. cut on it. Uh, so it cuts out about a good half an hour of the movie. I did not watch the full cut, but the, the, that uh, Blu-ray also has a really great uh, breakdown uh, of the U.S. cut. So if you wanted to see some of the changes without watching the whole, you know, a, a, without without watching like a lesser, worse version of the movie, there's about a 12 or 15 minute uh, feature on there that shows, it'll show like side-by-sides of the scene in the original cut and the scene in the U.S. cut, and some of the changes that they made are baffling to me. Like the the the, the optical effects, especially, are super weird. Uh, the music is, like I said, is very heavy handed. It very much sounds like a horror movie score. Uh, whereas the score in the original cut of the film is very like sparingly used. Uh, it's a score that really doesn't draw any attention to itself. You almost don't notice it when it is there a lot of times. So they were definitely going, whoever bought the rights to it in America, were definitely trying to turn it into a very different kind of movie. It's really strange. It's a re- some really strange decisions are made. So if you're curious about that, uh, first of all, if, you, if you're if you interested in owning a copy of this movie, that Umbrella release is the definitive version of this movie to own. Uh, grab that one, but you can watch the U.S. cut or you can watch that breakdown of it, and it's a it's a pretty pretty interesting uh, view of of how American distributors just didn't know what the fuck to make of this movie and tried to turn it into something that they knew how to market. So it didn't seems, work. <laughs> it seems weird. It seems weirder to do that because, like, I don't know that that might be interesting to know, like, what the fuck they were planning on doing with that because, yeah. Because hey, the movie's already made, so right. all you got to do is get it out. If you're going to get it out, it seems like that cost remains the same. So doesn't it cost more for you to go back in and try to recut it and change the score? And- yeah, but I think they thought oh. that like maybe it the, the the original form was just not going to be appealing to American audiences, or it was hard to market because how do you, this would be a hard movie to market because it's not really a horror movie, uh, although it gets lumped in as a horror movie. Uh, for good reason, but it's not really a horror movie in in the traditional sense. So what they were doing is, I think, trying to turn it into a horror movie from beginning to end, uh, because at least then they know how to market it. You know, I don't know. I don't know what they were thinking, but uh, it didn't go over well. The res- the reviews from most American critics when it was originally released in that form in 1983 were pretty harsh. Uh, and responding to criticisms of Possession, 
Zawofsky later said, quote, to please the majority is the requirement of planet cinema. Planet cinema, I guess. I think that's the European version of like planet Hollywood, right? Uh, it's a, it's a I restaurant. Think so. yeah. Yeah, I think so, yeah. I think so. As far as I'm concerned, he says, I don't make a concession to viewers, these victims of life who think that a film is made only for their enjoyment and who know nothing about their own existence. <laughs> End quote. I just love that quote so much. He's like, fuck you guys. You don't, you don't, you don't like my movie? Fuck you. That's <laughs> basically what he's saying. I don't care. I don't make this movie to entertain you. I just, I, I'm making art is what he's saying, you know? So, it's always interesting. Like he he does go into those like tangents sometimes. Like I've even seen him do it with like cinematography, where like I don't remember if he was talking about Newton or not, but like he was talking about. Yeah, I think it might have been like at one point having to have that discussion about like the only person I have to work with is the producers. Like he was basically telling the story, like you know, because they fund the movie. So yeah, I've got to appease them in some way but the cinematographer does not dictate to me how to make a movie i tell the cinematographer where to be and how to light and they're like they would know how to light better that's why they have that job but i tell them what i want and i can look through the lens and tell them where to be and he's like but they don't tell me what to do or yeah, something. i'm, I'm and, the director i'm i'm steering the ship yeah, and he, he, somebody, I think in that same thing, they were like, yeah, it seems like in nowadays, like, uh, you know, even actors have more pool on what they will and won't do. And he's like, if you give them that right, he was like, but that's not for me. Yeah. And he's like, you, he's like, you take the role because you're honored to have the role <laughs> on my movie. Wow. <laughs> something like that. So he's got that very, like, I don't know, at times he, he seems to come across like he's got that attitude. Like, yeah. this is my shit. I'm doing my, my vision for this. If you like it, great. If you don't, I don't care, basically. Yeah. So I, uh, you know, this is a movie that I only saw for the first time uh, maybe a year ago um, when it, I think it's when it finally got put on Shudder, actually, uh, was the first time I'd seen it because, I, you know, I'd known about it for years but it was notoriously hard to get a hold of in the U.S. Uh, until very recently. I mean, that it, it landing on Shutter for streaming a year or so ago was a really big deal because it, it, there had been no proper release of this. In I think there was a U.S. release of it in like 2000, but it wasn't like the full director's cut. It was a compromised version of the film. Not that it wasn't that American cut from 1983, but it wasn't the original cut, which is what we have now. Uh, but you know, so I, I knew a little bit about it here and there. I had seen bits and pieces of the subway scene, you know, but nothing that I had heard about it or seen from it before I actually sat down to watch it could possibly prepare me for what I saw unfold on screen that very first time. So you watching it this time, this was your first time ever watching it, right? When you when you initially watched it for this episode? Yeah, this was the very first time I've ever seen it. So um, and I knew nothing about it. I knew nothing. I wouldn't. No, yeah, just completely blind. You blind. knew Sam Neill was in it, and that's about it. I didn't it. know that. Yeah. <laughs> so I assumed it was going to be a little like Jurassic Park. Yeah, you were incorrect in that regard. Um, but so what? Well, what were your first impressions the first time you sat down to watch it? Oh, what the fuck! Like a, <laughs> that makes sense. <laughs> I, I mean, I mean, legitimately, I actually. For whatever reason, 
I did not have a visceral hatred to it. Like, so when we get to reviewing the reviews on when that comes out, you'll hear plenty of people that are not happy. But the I did not have like a revulsion to this movie. Like I was not I I did have a what the fuck, but somehow I have to say that it had a vibe to it that appealed to me. And like visually and the music, the just the I don't know, everything about it for some reason drew me in. Like I was invested in what was going on here. And even if I was left at the end still being like, all right, I'm gonna have to really go back and think about this. Um so, so he, it, I, I feel like the filmmaking was very good. Yeah, I mean, it, it's one of those movies that it's hard to kind of explain it to somebody who hasn't seen it. Like, it really is, like, like you're kind of like what you're saying. It's a movie that you really have to experience uh, for the for yourself, and, and you won't ever fully get the appeal of this movie until you have sat down to watch it. And I can see this movie not being everyone's cup of tea, obviously, but. It is a an astounding movie that I, I've seen it probably four, maybe five times at this point. Um, and I still can't fully explain everything that's going on, but it's not a movie that I think is supposed to be explainable. Like, I don't think it's a movie that you should, or I, I don't think the intention of the filmmaker is to create a movie that you can just list out the plot and explain everything uh, in, in a logical, linear way, you know, because a lot of it is very, it's a lot of, um, what's the word I'm looking for? There's a lot of metaphor on display here, you know? There's a lot of stuff going on that, there's a lot of symbolism on display that I would be lying if I said that I could interpret all of it. I mean, I have a pretty decent idea of what he's going for, but I can't explain, like, why her miscarriage turns into an octopus thing that then turns into a reproduction of her husband. Like I can't explain the movie doesn't is not interested in explaining these things. It's about, it's more about the emotional experience of the people who are on film. And it's such a weird movie that it's, it's one of those movies that I really, it's one of those movies that once I discover it, 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 I, I want everyone I know who's into like weird subversive cinema to see it. Like you need to watch this movie because like I said, uh, no matter how much I talk about it, you won't ever understand until you sit down to experience it for yourself. Uh, but the thing about this is that yes, the, the, there are things like the woman fucking an octopus, you know, that that's memorable. Yeah. But when I think about this movie, Shockingly, that's not the first thing that comes to mind. First thing that I think, you think of, about the miscarriage, I think about the subway scene. I saw. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I do. I, I do think about that subway scene, but I. I but think not just about, the miscarriage. That was the joke. Yeah, I know. But that that whole scene, though, that whole scene is just like unlike anything I've ever seen. And, and really, when I think about possession, I'm thinking about the performances of Ajani and and Sam Neill. Like they are some of the most fearless performances I've ever seen. They're playing like kind of to the rafters, you know, they're playing uh, these roles in a very heightened way. They're not playing them like realistic or anything like that. Like the entire movie from the beginning, even before things really go off the rails, they're playing things a little bit 
just a little bit more than than how a person would actually act in in reality, if that makes sense, you know. Uh, but these performances, the way that they throw themselves into these characters and these performances, they do it with an abandon that is rarely seen in movies. And you can understand why it took a an emotional toll on them. Yeah, I mean, they they definitely you you can tell they're they're throwing themselves into this and they're taking their own thing with them, like as they perform. Um, mm-hmm. It's interesting, like just. Uh, I don't know. It's it's weird to think of like what Sam Neill is known for now, and uh, and then uh, Isabella Jotty, she's obviously known because she's very pretty and that sort of thing. But she's an incredible actress. Like she, yeah. you can tell she like really puts herself into this situation or like throws herself into the role, and and especially for something that. I don't know. One thing that really works about this movie that that if it can keep you interested, which is an important part, you were talking about you don't think you could ever know everything that he's going for exactly. But I think I I, I guess that's part of with art. Uh, if somebody's really going for it, like really trying to throw themselves into something like this, you can't know everything because you're not that person and right so you, you can't experience everything they've experienced or how their brain processed all of this thought and emotion and everything and so he's putting himself into this movie and so even for them probably they're probably trying to translate it through their own eyes and that yeah. takes guts that takes like a whole other thing like that they're they've got an idea of what the story is but they've got it process it through themselves somehow i guess mix it with how he wants it you know or try to become how he's envisioning it and uh i don't know that that's that's a tough thing to do and so i I give all of these people props for doing this like i I, like you said i i could watch this movie and i can tell you a ton of different things what i think it's all about or what it meant to me right but that doesn't necessarily made anything to yeah (laughs) i saw i saw one writer and i don't remember who it was uh but i saw one writer describe it as one of those movies that only makes sense to the director and to nobody else like it only fully makes sense to the director which you could also say about the room like for tommy wiseau like it's one or or plan nine from outer space like uh, these these directors who like are like it's their it's their id and their brain on screen. Luckily, Zulovsky is a, a more talented filmmaker than a Tommy Wiseau, but it, I understand that comparison because it's like this is like nobody else could have made this movie. Like nobody else, this could not have come from anybody else but this guy because this is like him, his emotions, the pain that he went through with his own marriage. This is all of that, all, all of the. Uh, his artistic ambitions. This is all of that mixed together and thrown on screen. And then you get a couple of actors who are willing to go to these places for that vision. And it creates like, it it really creates something special that is like, like I said, at the top of the show, unlike anything I've ever seen uh, ever again. And you know, when you're watching this up until the point where, which is about an hour into the movie, the part where we first see the monster, up until then, we're watching a fairly straightforward relationship drama. Granted, one that's a little bit heightened because of the, the performances, but 
the first hour of the movie is just about the relationship between these two, between uh, them and their son, Heinrich, you know, the love triangle uh, and all that stuff. And I feel like if you went into this not knowing where it was going to go or not having any inkling that it was going to be a horror movie or, or have horror elements to it, I should say, like, that would be very maybe jarring. But maybe not, though, because even during that relationship drama section of the film, it feels like it could boil over at any point. Like, because of the severity of the performances, by the time we see the monster, it's really not as shocking as you would think it would be or as jarring as you think it would be because you're kind of primed by that point to believe that anything could happen. Like, I don't know what's going to happen in this movie, but it could be anything and nothing's going to surprise me. So, yeah. If you're not shocked by Heidrich showing up and doing Kung Fu at some right. point. But... <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I mean, well, speaking of that, though, what. Like I said, this this gets categorized as a horror movie a lot, but would you consider this a horror movie or what genre could you could you put this into a genre? I no, I don't know about. I don't know that you can nail it down and I don't, but, but I don't know what genre fits it better necessarily, right. you know, like I, I don't, it's, I get, cause you couldn't just, you couldn't go to the people that would love a good drama and say like, yeah, it's a drama. You should watch like, Hey, this. you love the English patient. Come watch this. <laughs> right. <laughs> exactly. But it's, it's also like, hard to go to somebody who like, Oh, you like, you know, Friday the 13th part three. You're gonna love this one. Like it's not that it's not gonna to appeal to those horror movie fans either, right? No, no, it's not. I just I don't know for some reason. I guess in my brain I was thinking at least some of the weirdness, like horror movie fans. Maybe maybe now that A twenty four exists. Yeah, maybe uh, <laughs> because a lot of horror movie, a lot of people who are just and this is you know I'm a I I consider myself a huge horror movie fan. It's my favorite genre. But a lot of people who are consider themselves like horror movie fans, I don't know that they would enjoy the first half of this movie. You know, not if they didn't know that there was other stuff coming up. Uh, although I mean, I don't know how you what you could watch the first half of this movie and not be just absolutely compelled by the performances and the film's visual style. That's how that's how I felt. Like I, I was just drawn in immediately. And what's interesting too that he does is, and and I I don't know. I, I can't tell if I need to restrain myself a little bit or not when we talk about like uh, further viewing because I'm thinking of it compared to some other movies. And one thing that is interesting about this is that he drops you into this situation with no context. Like, yeah, you don't no... you don't see any of their relationship prior to. Mark returning from whatever espionage mission he seems to have been on. Yeah, you never really know. You never know exactly what's going on there. You, you never see you them know. happy. Yeah, it's you're just like, you, you never saw them now. when they were still when they were still happy together. Yeah, exactly. That, that's an interesting way to do it. You just you're just dropped into the middle of it, like, and this is this is going on in their relationship, and here they are, and they don't waste time trying to. Uh, explain it narratively like they've got to give you some background really they just yeah. kind of you know anything that happens to fall out of the dialogue i guess but it's not like very obvious like they felt like they needed to say something so that you're right. caught up on the story it just you just have it to just assume, plays out in real time yeah you have to assume that at some point they were genuinely in love with each other you know and and that 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 thing has broken 
at some point, either while he was gone or maybe it was it was because we don't know how long he was gone. There's a indication that it was a pretty long time, but we don't really know, you know, uh, but at some point during that, I mean, that's when she has that uh, that miscarriage or whatever you want to call it on the subway uh, or in the tunnel is while he's gone. It's the only flashback in the film that I can recall. Uh, you don't get any flashbacks to them when they were like a loving, happy couple and like playing in the park with a having a picnic with little Bob or anything. You don't see any of that. You just see them uh, on the verge of of exploding, like from that well, that's first gonna, scene. <laughs> that's kind of the thing too, though. Like they, it's like they don't even know. So that's part of that unknowable thing too. So like, while well, you can look at like the monster, this unknowable monster, the, the Lovecraftian stuff we were talking about. Part of the thing for them too is it's. Like he's trying to figure out, he doesn't understand. It seems like, yeah. and she doesn't seem to really understand what she's created or how yeah. she's, and uh, and so it's like the whole thing is like they don't know, you don't know, and uh, and they don't give you any, no, the, you know, the director's not dropping a narrator in there to give you any more, and yeah. uh, there's I don't know, it's just kind of interesting. It's that whole way. I, I also love like the. I don't know how you make such compelling uh, cinematography or just the just the way it looks, while also feeling so cold yeah. and uh, just I don't know. It, it's that part's really interesting to me because you you obviously you know you get that from like the the Berlin Wall stuff that just feels yeah. very harsh and just uh, I don't know just. I don't know. It's, it's uncomfortable, I guess. It adds it to the uncomfortableness. It really does. I mean, and she's always in blue, uh, so she's got this coldness to her. And then you've got, um, I think her name's Helen, the uh, the school teacher that uh, Johnny also plays uh, when she's yeah. wearing, but she's got like, the, and she wears all white. So she's like the polar opposite. Uh, she's more like angelic almost, whereas as uh, Anna is very cold all the time. And that, and that wearing her wearing blue all the time kind of adds to that feeling. But I, I think that's one of the things about this film that I enjoy so much is that because watching it, I feel like like every decision that Zuavsky makes is like the right one. You know, like every decision he makes from a visual style or whatever is like he's nailing it. You know, like setting the film in Berlin is an act of genius. You know, obviously he's pulling from his experiences living in communist Poland uh, where he was frequently clashing with the government, as we mentioned before. But Berlin also thematically ties in with the film, with the divide obviously mirroring the divide between Mark and Anna. And he frames them all the time, where they're separated by doors. Uh, the scene in the um, Cafe uh, Einstein, you know, where they meet up and they, they sit at the two different tables, kind of back to back, and they're divided by that like mirror that's above them. That scene, by the yeah. way, is fucking crazy that's I was, the, the first I was time i watched this movie that was the scene where i'm like all right we are in for something here like this is hard to watch <laughs> sam neil going ham in the like fucking yeah. restaurant and stuff yeah and the, he gets tackled by the chefs the chefs run out of the kitchen and tackle, <laughs> <laughs> tackle right. him. I, I just felt bad for the poor waitress who that was like her section and she had to wait on these people <laughs> it was probably like her second day all right poor thing <laughs> But uh, you know, I thought it was at a nice restaurant. <laughs> it's a nice little, nice little German cafe. We just serve coffee and schnitzel, and then he has to deal with these people trying to murder each other in, in her in her restaurant. But uh, yeah, so but every decision that he makes, like from the um, 
you know, setting it there in Berlin goes a long ways because you've got all the architecture is all so cold and gray. And it feels like, and I, I it feels like every scene is shot on an overcast day. Like it really feels that way. I don't oh, yeah. know that I don't know how that's possible because they had such a short shoot, but it feels like every scene that they're outside is overcast. Like it feels like it's about to start raining and it feels cold and gloomy. Uh, as it should. This is not a sunny, happy movie. It's a cold, gloomy movie. Uh, but the way that he shoots every scene, uh, I love the handheld cinematography. I love that he uses wide angles or wide angle lenses on everything because it just gives an otherworldly feel to even simple close-ups and things like that. Like it just feels a little off, you know? It well, just every I, every city, like I mean, even the cities are like there's only ever like at max like three or four other people right around you yeah. know like it's like even out, out on the street there's like no nobody walking you know like nobody's hanging out just yeah. every once in a while another person shows up and 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 then the ending gets super weird because it you know we talked about trying to figure out the genre that it's in but it kind of turns into an action movie a little bit at the end it's got some explosions some uh, some car chases and <laughs> all kinds of weird shit, some shootouts. Like it, it just like, it's all over the place, but it doesn't feel disjointed. Uh, the end of this movie, I don't know that I can explain. There's a lot of stuff about this that I don't know that I'm ready to, even having seen it several times that I'm not ready to try to figure out what all it means. There's obviously some, uh, a big, there's also, uh, there's a lot of thematic stuff about doppelgangers and doubles and things like that, because you know, obviously the, uh, the school teacher is a doppelganger. Uh, yeah. Although I don't, I, although that could also just be in Mark's psyche because when Heinrich sees her, he doesn't seem because he Heinrich sees her at one point when he's at the apartment and he would have been taken aback if this looked like his girlfriend. Right. And Bob doesn't seem to be affected by it or, or Margie doesn't seem to know that she looks like Helen or Anna. You know, so maybe it's just in Mark's mind. Uh, hell, maybe. I mean, you, there's a there could be a theory that even the octopus that you know when he sees her in bed with the monster that that could just be part of his own psyche. Like this whole movie could just be about the two of them having mutual psychotic breaks. Who the hell knows? You know. Yeah, I kind of took it as like, uh, you know, for what it's worth, that yeah, that maybe that was him. Whoever this lady is, uh, you know, she's what he wishes she was. Yeah. Like more subservient and that sort of thing. So he's he's still thinking of her, but they sees her this way. Yeah, because because she ends up coming over to the apartment and she's kind of doing the maternal things that 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 uh the mother should be doing. You know, she's bathing uh bob and she's putting him to bed reading him a bedtime story and all this stuff that you would expect the mother to do but she's doing it so she is kind of taking that place and he the the creature the the doppelganger that she creates is sort of wish fulfillment for her as well right because her husband's gone all the time uh that's well established early on in the film so now she's created this being that's always going to be there for her that's always going to be with her so she's also kind of trying to create the perfect partner for herself I couldn't I couldn't decide if I felt like more that it was uh that was her or if it was like him. I mean, I guess it, it exists without him, but I kinda also looked at it as like the he thinks that she's nuts. 
and that like something's going on and that this is part of that that she's yeah. like cheating on him with this other side of herself or so i don't know i was trying to like really play that out of my brain but here's the thing too is that um i'll preface this by saying i get it what the fuck i know but if if you want to really try to think about it i don't i guess i was thinking like as an artist you're trying to translate um your feelings onto onto screen and so you do it i guess in funky ways like you're, you're trying to express how you feel in the moment and yeah. that's already tough to do and, and then i think about times that i've been i've been through a few breakups in my day and i know that at the times that you feel really sad about it you feel the way that you feel when it first happens however it happens uh good or bad you end up having like certain thoughts and saying certain things and i don't mean like absolutely nuts things but just feeling in a certain way that like in the moment feels exactly right. And I know that I've even been in conversations with friends where I say something and I think it just sounds like it's so expressive towards the way that I feel. And then like 10 years later, I've looked back on that and I'm like, why did I fucking say that? Right. Like it doesn't, yeah. it, it's like a, what the fuck to me? Because you're saying it out of that moment. Right. Cause when you're initially saying it, sometimes you're speaking from a place of pure emotion. And, and it's your fucking lizard brain talking, not your logical, normal, everyday brain. Right, exactly. And so then uh, imagining even somebody having to listen to me talk then. But anyway, so this this movie's the prime example of a place that should be what the fuck. Um, and yeah. uh, and it, it is. And I don't know. I, I feel like you could spend all day like trying to pick apart like what each thing does. But like we've already said that... A lot of it is 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 him, is Zalowski, yeah. and, and yeah. you you can't ever know exactly unless he decides to literally sit. He was going to sit out and write out each scene and tell you exactly right. what he was thinking. Yeah, yeah. Well, in the years since its release, Possession has gained a major cult following, and these days it's largely considered uh, probably the most significant film of Zalowski's career. It being his only English language movie and the only one to receive any kind of real release in the U.S. probably goes a long ways towards that. But uh, I think it is considered by most people to be kind of his magnum opus. I think on the Silver Globe could have reached that status had it been completed in its original form. Uh, but as it goes, like if most people, if they know of one of his movies, it's this one. Uh, in the most recent version of Sight and Sound's Greatest Films of All Time list, which is just published this past August, they only do it every 10 years or so, Possession appeared at number 243, tied, by the way, with David Cronenberg's video drill. So, you know, it's not going to be the only thing tied, time we tie him to David Cronenberg, I feel right. like, if we yeah. get into reviewing the, or not reviewing the reviews, but uh, further viewing. Uh, further viewing. But yeah, this is a, you know, this is a undeniably unique film. And it is one that as we, you know, over the last couple of hours we've been talking about it, I think we've proven that it's a hard one to define. Uh, one could easily put it in the horror genre just based on the inclusion of that Lovecraftian monster and the doppelgangers. And uh, But like I said before, the first half of the film plays more like a heightened relationship drama. Uh, and then it goes into, it has some sci-fi elements, I think, with the doppelgangers. It's got some action movie elements. Like it's all over, it's got spy movie elements. 
here and there, you know, because you've got the guy with the fucking pink socks. What does that mean? What who, what's the significance <laughs> of the guy with the pink socks? They mention him in the in his debriefing, and then he's one of the last things we see in the movie is him showing his socks. And I don't know what that means. I don't know, but I think that is part of what makes the movie so unique and so powerful because it's not fully explained as an experience and it's a singular vision. And it is one that draws from the director's own past experiences, both physical and psychological. It is, in my opinion, I, I think possession is a stunning work of art. I mean, there's, we, we consider film in general to be a, an art form, I think, but there are some films that you watch and you're like, this is a work of art. Like I can, I can't, I can't necessarily call like John Wick a work of art in the same way that I can call possession a work of art. You know, this I think sits alongside uh, movies by filmmakers like David Lynch, who people who directors who are are just trying to, they're, they're putting their artistic vision on screen without regard to uh, the commercial aspect of filmmaking. They don't give a fuck. Yeah. <laughs> you you nailed it. I, I was just literally thinking right before you said all that. I was just like, there are certain movies that we're going to hit on that it just every once in a while we get one that you're like, oh, this is one of the ones that would like hang in a gallery somewhere. Exactly, <laughs> exactly. And I I think Possession is one of those movies. I think if you have not seen it and you're a fan of of subversive bold cinema. Uh, and you're not afraid of a movie that goes to some ugly places. I think you would do well to to seek this movie out and to watch it. I agree with Justin, and I don't I I don't know if that surprises anybody, but well, I just yeah. uh... I mean this is it's also one of those movies when we got into this, you know, when we announced this one, like I didn't know what your opinion on it was going to be, you know, because it's one of those movies that can divide people. If Todd were here. I mean, Todd's definitely surprised me with his taste in the past, but I, I feel like I would go into this assuming he wouldn't like it, you know, because he doesn't like stuff that's quite as on the fringe as, as I do, uh, which is fine. But uh, I could also be dead wrong. He, he could watch this and love it. Who knows? Maybe we'll see if he has a chance to watch it. And, uh, well, you, catch you up talked about you can't back. even. Yeah, it's weird because I, I feel like you, you, you mentioned that you can't, you know, how would you describe this to somebody and you can't and then it's like should you even do that if you thought you could because yeah you really should better that you you don't yeah that's true i think it's probably better if you kind of go in blind uh just you know hopefully if you're if you listen to this far in this episode you have watched it because we've spoiled the shit out of it <laughs> but uh but if not i even if you even even if we've spoiled it uh, I mean, granted, if you've listened to this podcast long enough, you should already know that we get heavy into spoilers on here. But it's even, a weird fucking movie so, that I almost, I almost feel like we can't spoil it. Yeah, <laughs> like because like, it's because you unless can't spoil, you've actually seen it, <laughs> you can't spoil the experience of watching it. Right, like that's something that only you can have. So if you haven't seen it, seek it out. I mean, it it looks. It, it looks incredible in this new 4K restoration. Uh, I, you know, Zawoski's stuff has been hard to find up until now, but like I said, there are some releases of some of his earlier films, his stuff pre-possession that are being released uh, here in the next couple of months. So uh, I'm going to seek those out because I want to see what else this guy's done. I, I especially want to see on the Silver Globe and the Devil. Uh, those are the two that I'm, I'm really excited to check out. So I'm going to probably pre-order those and, 
Hell, maybe we'll do another episode on them one of these days or or another. It's so weird, man. I the 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 guy. I don't know something about just like if any of his films just feel the way that this one feels. And I don't mean like in the cold, calculating way, but there's something visually that happens and like just the, the style of directing that just made me interested. Like I don't, I don't know if I'd have ever cared about the most important thing, love or whatever before right now. But I saw like a couple of clips of that while I was doing stuff. And I was like, I kind of want to see that. And I, yeah. Yeah. Don't even, I don't know. Like I was just interested in what else he does. And, and definitely. And uh, what's what's this new restoration of on the silver globe or whatever comes out then. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I, it look, cause it, I already know it looks cool. Wicked. Oh, it looks cool yeah. as hell, and I want to watch it. <laughs> so, well, Gary, I think that's going to about wrap us up for uh, Possession. Uh, but I blame we... Hodorowski for all this, for me being yeah. more open-minded about this. Like he's just <laughs> forced forced my brain into a new place or something. That's good, though. I mean, that's, that's, that's what he would want, to be honest. Yeah, <laughs> but, you're right. But uh, I think that's good. I think it's good to be more open-minded to more subversive kind of stuff, you know, because... Uh, I don't know. You're creating new experiences for yourself, you know? Yeah. So before we wrap this episode up completely, though, Gary, we, we, we did mention that we have one more roulette episode to get to. So we need to make an announcement. We need to choose the next roulette film. Let's spin the wheel, see where we land. All right. So our next choice. Oh, this is going to be a fun one, Gary. From 1991. Directed by Sue Hark. I'm excited for this. And starring Jet Li. We are going to be talking about Once Upon a Time in China. Have you seen it? I have never seen Once Upon a Time in China. Cool. Well, you're going to. Very familiar with who Jet Li is. Yeah. I guess we just just don't do American films anymore. No, no, no. It's fun getting into (laughs) foreign films. (laughs) It's fun. Uh, The uh, Sue Hark, you've probably seen some of his other movies. I mean, he's a prolific director. Um, but, uh, oh, well, he's done a couple of American movies. Like he did double team with, uh, Dennis Rodman and Jean-Claude Van Damme. I'm sure you've seen that one. If you've seen anything by him, I 100% have, I don't know how (laughs) promising that makes this, but, okay. (laughs) He's a, he's done a handful of, um, collaborations with Jean-Claude Van Damme, I think. So I don't know. We'll, we'll figure We'll, we'll look into it, but, uh, once upon a time in China, it's a series. Actually, there's like five of these movies, six, I think, if you count the, there's one called Once Upon a Time in China and America that he didn't direct. I think Sam Hung directed it. Uh, I'll look into that sometime between now and when we record that episode. But uh, there's a great box set out from Criterion of all of them. So if you guys want to watch along, you know, maybe you've got some Christmas cash laying around that you can spend on a, on a Criterion box set and watch along with us. Or, you know, just go stream it. It's on Criterion Channel and a bunch of other places. So we're going to be talking about Once Upon a Time in China uh, on the next episode. I do think our next episode, just like this one, we're going to have an extra week gap in between just because of uh, travel and holiday stuff still going on. But uh, rest assured, we are st- we are coming out with a new episode. It might just be three weeks instead of two from now. But we've got some bonus content between now and then that we're going to be releasing. So keep an eye on your feed. Uh, like, rate, review, all that stuff as always. Gary, where can you be found on the internet? I am at this is Gary Horn on all the things. And I am at Justin underscore Bishop. That's on uh, threads and letterboxed and all that good stuff. 
Uh, and you can find the show at cinema underscore shock on all the usual places, as well as at cinemashock.net, where you can also find all of our episodes, links to our merch store, links to our Discord, all kinds of stuff on there. And uh, until next time, may the wings of liberty never lose a feather and be excellent to each other. <laughs>